Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 109, Revelation, A Robe Dipped in Blood. And today on the podcast, I want us to finish Revelation chapter 19 by looking at verses 11 through 21, which will in fact only leave us with three chapters remaining in the book of Revelation. And so we are in fact nearing the end and there is a lot left to look at, but it's exciting that we are coming to a close on the book of Revelation. But in this episode today, I want us to look at what has probably proven to be one of the more familiar images people have in their minds when they think of the book of Revelation. And that is Jesus on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword having a battle or a war with his own army versus the beast and the false prophet and the kings of the earth with their armies and what that means for the future, what that means for the present, what Christians and followers of Jesus, as well as those who are not followers of Jesus, might be led to expect is coming as a result of what this passage unfolds for us, and then how we, as Christians, as followers of the Lamb, and as those who allow Jesus' words and Jesus' presence to enable us to reinterpret many things that we assume we know about the Bible, how we are to understand, interpret, and then apply this passage. And so there are few passages that we have covered so far in the podcast that to me are more important than this one. And this one will pull together quite a few themes that we've looked at over the past several months in Revelation, but actually dating back clear to the very beginning of this entire podcast. And so I have been looking forward to this section for a long time. Thankful that you are choosing to tune in. And so let's just jump right into it and see what Jesus has for his people. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, as we begin to get into this passage and take a look at several of the key components, let me just share with you right at the very beginning the way I was taught to understand this passage. Here we go. In the end, Jesus may have come as a peaceful um, Messiah, but in the end, Jesus will return and with full wrath join together his followers, the Christians. Jesus will come back as a conquering king And there will be a bloody battle on the earth at a place known as Armageddon where Jesus will slay his enemies and he will crush every foe that he once had of filled with the entire world of those who did not believe in him. Um, That's basically it. Jesus was like every other military victor who ever rode in on a horse at any point. Um, a, a fun book that I came across a little while ago was a book called Postcards from Babylon by Brian Zond. And one of his chapters in the middle of this book was there's always some dude on a horse. And he recounts some of his many travels over the years in various countries and how virtually every one of them, including America, has statues or monuments dedicated to some military general or some fighting um, king or Caesar or whoever riding on a horse with a sword in his hand. In fact, when you go onto Google, as I did this past week, and Google Revelation 19 or the rider on the white horse or Jesus on the white horse or something to that effect, trying to get Google at least to bring us into this passage and what the internet has to say about this passage, I, I, I scanned um, as many of the images that popped up on the Google search as I could in in just several minutes time and was somewhat disturbed to notice that between 80 and 90% of the images, whether they be paintings or something that somebody created in a scrapbook or something like that, but 80 to 90% of the images had Jesus on the white horse and the sword was with him, but the sword was in his hand. Um, Not unlike how Brian Zond refers to, there's always some dude on a horse. Um, but, but actually, that's not what Revelation 19 says at all. In fact, Revelation is very explicit that the sword that Jesus has is not in his hand. It's in his mouth. And you might say, okay, well, fine, whatever. But the point is funny, and, and I've brought this up several times in the podcast and just want to remind you of it one more time. And that is that whether we like to admit it or not, we tend to see what we expect to see. And we tend to read from the pages of the Bible even what we expect those passages will say or what we expect them, um, what we expect they actually do say. And I talked about this in a sermon that I inserted in the podcast. I believe it was episode 49, but the title of the sermon was, How Do You read the law. And it's a question I argued in that sermon that Jesus poses to um, the man right before he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in fact, I think Jesus is exposing something here, and it's kind of the point of my podcast again, but is exposing what I think is confirmation bias. 
Um, we have something in our minds. We have some expectation of what will happen or what should happen, and then we tend unknownst, um, you know, unknowingly and sometimes subconscious, subconsciously, but we tend to read that into what's actually on the page. And I would argue that many people have chosen to do that very thing, particularly with Jesus. And as we've looked at Revelation so much already, we've noticed that there's a lot of Old Testament passages that come to bear, as well as other passages in the New Testament that help us make the most sense of what's happening in this passage here. And I'm not going to disappoint you. We're going to do that exact thing here because I think what we're faced with is read at a literal value, um, at face value, this looks as if God is going to do something rather ridiculous, um, if you ask me. Um, I think that basically what you're asking God to do is to, um, or, or you're imagining Jesus would do if you think he's going to come back in violence, is that he would ultimately be renouncing everything he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and that he's just going to resort back to catastrophic violence because, you know, if you want to get things done, you're, you're going to um, take matters into your own hands and do it in a violent way. And so, um, it, you know, if God's solution, though, for evil is to kill the people who are evil, well, then God just resorts back to being another version of Caesar or another version of Pharaoh or another version of Nebuchadnezzar um, or those who, who run Babylon in its worst forms or worst expressions. And I have a very hard time, particularly as the verse that immediately preceded our passage pointed out that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What we know about Jesus is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know that the anticipated arrival of the coming Messiah in the first century was a militaristic one. It was a person who would come, who would free the Jews from their oppression to the Romans. And what Jesus did, in addition to disappointing lots of people by not being that Messiah, was what he did was reinterpret for us who the real enemy is. And therefore, he interpreted for us how we ought to view the people who are either over us or whom we are over and how the world is meant to work and be reinterpreted in and through the person of Jesus. And so that's what I want to do. In fact, I think there are numerous times in the New Testament, one of which is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where even Paul is able to explain to us that we, we walk not um, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, for though we walk in the flesh, like as human beings in this world, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so what I think is important for Christians, what I think is important for Americans is to look at this passage and not use what we might imagine Jesus is like at the end to determine the way that we think about our lives in the here and now. Because when I get down into some of the finer points I start to recognize, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't actually have a sword in his hand. He has a sword in his mouth. And what, what would that actually stand to do for us? Like, what, why, why 
pay any attention to the sword in his mouth and the fact that he is called the word of God. Well, I would like to remind you of what Jesus himself said about his words in John chapter 12. In verse 44 of John 12, Jesus says this, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. Now, in verse 48 of John 12, Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. When we are now faced with a passage that appears for all intents and purposes to be that final day judgment, and I I would add that various forms of this kind of judgment are happening all the time, in fact, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that any Christian who has been, um, who has received the word of God into their own life has been convicted by it and has been led to therefore repent and place faith in Christ has in fact been slain, has been uh, pierced by the living word himself and has now been brought to new life. In fact, these, I would argue, are the very people described as his army of heaven. But in Revelation, in Revelation 19, the one on the horse is called the word of God. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Well, now Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 10 that our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what Paul seems to be saying is something very similar to what I think John is describing based on Jesus's own words in John 12, the word that Jesus has spoken will judge these people who reject him on the final day. And so when Jesus is referred to as the word of God and the sword coming out of his mouth, rather, this is nothing new that we've read this in another one of Paul's letters. In fact, it's the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, In all circumstances, Paul says, Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Okay, now, Paul's doing the same thing to Ephesians that he's doing in 2 Corinthians, but he's saying our weapons are not weapons of this world. They are divine, like divinely powerful to destroy strongholds, right? We don't, we don't wage war again, according to the flesh. But our our weapons of our warfare are not like this. Well, he's now describing this exact uh, methods of warfare, and he talks about flaming darts of the evil one. 
And in verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this is another reference, I think, to what he's talking about or what John's talking about in Revelation 19, what Jesus is talking about in Revelation 12. That is when Jesus speaks the truth, when Jesus speaks light into darkness, when Jesus speaks healing into brokenness, he is offering, he is inviting, he is drawing in, and he is compelling people to believe what he is saying about the ultimate nature of reality. If a person chooses to reject that, they are choosing for themselves a reality other than ultimate reality, which in the end of the book of Revelation is drawing us toward a point where the kingdom of God, ultimate reality, will fully express itself and spread across the face of the earth. If someone looks at Jesus's definition of ultimate reality, looks at his definition of healing and wholeness and truth and light and does not like that, they will not be welcome in the end, in that final place, because they themselves are choosing not to abide by that. It isn't as if God is standing up in heaven and is annoyed or agitated or aggravated and mean-spirited toward people that don't listen to what he's saying and God can't wait to strike them down. This is not how God revealed himself to be in the person of Jesus. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 6, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word word there is the Greek word rhema, which refers to the spoken word. And so what Paul is saying is some of this armor that you are to put on to not wage war according to the flesh, but, but in a spiritual sense, when you speak the living word, when you speak the truth of the gospel, when according to Revelation 19, the prophecy is according to the testimony of Jesus. When you speak this into the life of another person, when another person speaks this word into your life, it does something. There is power here. And the Old Testament background for this idea in Ephesians chapter 6 is Isaiah chapter 11. We've looked at this before, and I would like to read the first four verses for you again because it ties in very clearly with what's happening in Revelation 19. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Now you think, strike the earth with the rod or kill the wicked. And you might think, well, yeah, he's got a sword. He's got a rod. He's going to beat people into submission. Well, that would be how Caesar would do it or how Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh. But here in Isaiah 11, it says, you shall strike. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. So we're talking about our mouths, our breath. Well, seven times over, 
John has referred, uh, Isaiah has referred to this, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. This is the spirit will infuse this Messiah to not decide disputes by what his ears hear or by what his eyes see. And I just said a moment ago that we tend to see what we expect to see. We tend to hear what we expect to hear. We tend to read what we expect to see on the page when we are trying to interpret this. And what Isaiah is saying is this one who's going to be full of my of the Lord's spirit will not decide disputes this way. He will judge with righteousness. Well, in the first verse of our passage from Revelation 19, John tells us that there's one sitting on this white horse called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So this one sitting on the throne, or I'm sorry, this one sitting on the white horse is going to judge in righteousness, and he does it according to this sword that is coming out of his mouth. In verse 15 of Revelation 19 is where we get that, and it actually says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Isaiah 11.4 is talking about. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So we look at this idea of, oh, he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and the typical image that surfaces in my mind is what I imagine ancient kings doing. If you hear a person is going to rule you with a rod of iron, somehow it means they're going to hold this incredibly powerful rod, and if you step out of line, you're going to get thumped with it. But this is not the way Jesus rules. So once again, we are invited to reread these Old Testament passages, knowing what we know of a Jesus who comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, showing that his way of peace and his establishment of peace for the earth is, is done in a very different way than the way everybody else seems to gain peace. And so, you know, as we continue to work our way through, we, we could go back to Zechariah chapter 9, which is where we get this prophecy of a time where um, a Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And here's what we're told Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the passage that Jesus and then the gospel writers through Jesus's words very explicitly make um, true for us that Jesus is in fact fulfilling this promise. But if Jesus is riding in on a donkey and is coming ultimately to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and to cut off the war horse from Jerusalem and to cut off the battle bow and in order to speak peace to the nations. 
then it is inconsistent with the character of God to all of a sudden stop doing that in order to completely destroy the nations. This is not the intention that Jesus ever came to bring when, number one, revealing the character of God to the world, which he will not go back on, and number two, graciously extending his rule and his peace as far as the eye can see. This is what it means to be Jesus. This is what it means that he rules and judges in righteousness. He is the righteousness of God. He is the faithful one to uphold God's promises and God's covenant for God's own honor and glory and for the blessing and flourishing of all the nations. So to imagine that at the end of time, God is going to say, oops, sorry guys, the clock is over, the clock has ended, and God now is going to reveal himself as a violent, aggressive, mean-spirited, bloodthirsty, vengeful God is a terrible way to imagine God is. It's what I like to call catapult theology, and it's really bad thinking. That is, you read the Old Testament as if God himself were predominantly violent. And then you come to the person of Jesus, who we allow to reveal to us the nice side of God. But then ultimately, when Jesus comes back in the second coming, the presence of Jesus is going to embody more that violent portrait of God that we believe we read correctly in the Old Testament than in the merciful, compassionate, self-giving love of God as revealed in the person of Jesus in the new. And I don't want there to be any mistake. Depending upon how you read Revelation 19, you are making your choice. You either catapult right over the person of Jesus and the God that you perceived him to be in the Old Testament, violent and angry, is the God you are perceiving will return when Jesus comes back at the end of the book of Revelation. Catapulting, jumping right over Jesus and not allowing anything that Jesus said and did to alter the way you think about both the first view of God or the last one. But the Bible repeatedly tells us over and over and over, Jesus reveals God to us. And what that means is we have to then understand how might I go back into this passage and wonder what it's going to look like now. That's the invitation that Jesus is giving through the way I'm choosing to read Revelation 19. Because as you've walked with me so far through the book, Nothing else through the first 18 chapters of Revelation would give us any indication that this is talking about a violent second coming. In fact, when I come back in just a moment, I want to share with you several other reasons why I don't think that's a fair reading, and yet what I think is a much truer understanding of what's happening in this passage. If you look at verse 13... In Revelation 19, we are told that he, this one seated on the white horse, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I titled this episode, A Robe Dipped in Blood, and I actually went back and forth between several titles, um, wondering which one would maybe catch the most attention or which one would sum up the passage as well. But one of the Additional elements that I see here, in addition to the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, not being placed in his hand, 
and him being called faithful and true, as well as the word of God, is this idea that he has blood on his robe long before any supposed battle ever takes place. And I don't think that we want to look past this. I don't think we want to grab a hold of the image and say, ooh, we have a, a sword, we have a white horse, we have a rider, he's got blood on his garment. You know, you've watched enough um, various movies on war, whether they be fiction or real, and you always have the, the victor at the end of the battle in some way who has his enemy's blood splattered on him, right? And so I don't know if this was explicitly discussed in the way that people have interpreted this passage, and, and it is debated regarding how people come to this conclusion. So I'm not going to say this is universally accepted, but the position I take and the way I understand this is that Jesus is the blood that is here on his robe is not the blood of his enemies. This is Jesus's own blood. In fact, several times in the book um, of Revelation, well, let, let me go back down here. If I keep reading to the next verse, it says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, that verse 14 there that talks about these armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, if we compare what we looked at in the first half of Revelation 19, um, we saw in verse 8, that the bride clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And we talked about what those righteous deeds were like and the compassion and the kindness and the humility that Paul exhorts people to clothe themselves with in the spirit, which is synonymous with clothing themselves with Christ. And so in Revelation chapter 7, if we go back to several chapters in the book, when we are describing this great multitude that no one could number, John sees them as people who are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you remember back to that episode, and that may have been in the early 70s of, in terms of numbered episodes, but I said, what an irony and a, just a complete contradiction. You know, robes don't become white when you wash them in blood. In fact, if you want to watch a commercial that will argue the, the strongest, you know, most powerful laundry detergent, they're going to show you how it could get blood stains out of a garment or get wine stains out of a, a garment or a carpet or something to that effect. So you don't wash white garments in blood to make them white. You, you would be at, at pains trying to find a detergent strong enough to get the blood stain out. But that's why revelation isn't meant to be taken literally. What we're talking about here is the blood of the lamb. They are um, owning up to the need they have for Jesus's shed blood to cover their sin and to wash them clean. This is why when talking again of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14, it's referring to these followers as these are those who follow the lamb 
wherever he goes. Now, take all those ideas. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, right? Well, Revelation 19 takes all those themes and ties them into one. It says the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen were following him on white horses. So these people follow the lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he goes and whatever he does, this people does with him. So they've got their own white horses. They're following him. They're part of him. Their robes are white because they've made them white in his blood. His robes are also white as a result of his own blood. And so here in Revelation 19, we're not seeing Jesus, who is the conqueror like we saw in Revelation chapter 6. No, Jesus is not the one who conquers by killing his enemies. Jesus is the one who conquers by allowing his enemies to kill him. And so what you have here is you do not have a violent, aggressive, angry Jesus any more than you have a violent, angry, and aggressive church. Unless you do have a violent, angry, and aggressive church, which sadly I've seen all too commonly in, the, in, in recent years, that situation then needs remedied through a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he's actually come to do for the world. And as Brian Zond says in his book, Postcards from Babylon, in a world married to war, now more than ever, we need to acclaim Christ as king and shout Hosanna. But our Hosanna must not be a plea for Jesus to join our side, bless our troops, and help us win our war. It must be a plea to save us from our addiction to war. And all through the Old Testament, the Lord was continually telling his people about their addiction to war and warning them about not getting caught up in that. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I don't think it's any accident that in Revelation 19, the name is called faithful and true and the word of God. The name of the Lord our God is the person of Jesus. And in Deuteronomy 17, when the kings, um, this, this is what the Lord tells his people in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so here's Moses writing in Deuteronomy for the people not to acquire many wives, not to acquire many horses, and not to acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. This is the power three, power, sex, and money. They are always three incredibly staunch temptations for any person 
at any point in time. And the Lord is saying, your temptation will be, seeing what you saw in Egypt about power, sex, and money, is to think that the way you're going to thrive as a nation is going to do it in the exact same way. And yet, Israel, don't forget, you experienced the oppressive side of living in a world where power, sex, and money was everybody's go-to. You didn't like it when you weren't at the top of the power, sex, and money list. Therefore, you are not to ever idolize or worship or pursue power, sex, and money. So any king that you put over you cannot acquire many horses for himself. This is not, you're not going to put your energy and your time into your militaristic strength. It's not going to be this way for you. And so here's Jesus, right? Looking at this battle that he is going to have with um, these enemies of God, this beast and the false prophet. As you look down at the end of our passage, it says that this beast and the false prophet were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And immediately before that, in verse 20, it says the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, what's really interesting about this passage is that, I, I mean, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so I, I watched, uh, the read the books, Lord of the Rings, and then watched the movies that transpired after that. But one of the things you notice in that movie series is that, as you would expect with any great story, the culminating battle, you know, the battle to end all battles is going to be this monstrously long, drawn out, uh, you know, detailed emotions rising, the losers or the winner you hope to win is about ready to die. And then all of a sudden the victory comes and it's this this great emotional arousal. And, you know, you watch a series like the Lord of the Rings, and that's the first one that comes to my mind. And you think final battle, like, man, like pull out all the stops. You know, you've, you've shown us other battles along the way, show us the ultimate battle. But what's really funny in a strange sense, I guess, funny, but in, in a way, really funny about Revelation 19 is there is no battle. It says in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And you're like, whoa, it's about ready to get intense. The very next verse, and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And you're like, well, well, where's the battle? Like, where's this culminating victorious battle? It doesn't even happen. It doesn't even happen. Because the word that Jesus spoke, he's already spoken. He said in John 12, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It does not matter what army is arrayed for battle. It does not matter who is opposing the truth. The truth will always win out. And on the final day, the fact that Jesus is there with the sword of the Spirit coming out of his mouth is in fact the thing that has already judged those who oppose him. And all who want to receive him and all who want to welcome in real truth will find themselves welcomed in. But all those who oppose him will not. 
And it says in verse 20 that this beast and this false prophet, these two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Again, it's a strange image. Lakes don't typically burn. Um, Burning is something that's done with dry matter. And now you're talking about a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It's a contradictory image. And it's okay that it's contradictory. Now you say that there are others who are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So I do want to point out that in the way this is talked about, the the birds of the heavens now are called in to gather for the great supper of God is how it's described in verse 17, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And um, this is just a, a poetic way, I think, of us understanding how the judgment actually comes. Because listen, the judgment is being described as coming from the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, which we know are his words of judgment, and coming from the creation itself over against those who have um, betrayed that stewarding responsibility. God himself is nowhere spoken about as being the one dishing out this punishment. Listen to the passive way in verse 21 that this is described. Um, I'm sorry, in verse verse 20, it says, these two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is a passive statement. It's one that doesn't actually put the action into God's hands. And if you don't like the way that sounds, I I understand that, but I want to remind you um, based upon their uh, John's use of this, the flesh of horses and their riders, um, you know what what the Old Testament seems to indicate about some put their trust in horses, and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We don't put hope and confidence into horses and into chariots. But we're shown that in the end, the beast and the false prophet are going to be thrown alive. They were thrown. Okay, so I want to go back to the book of Exodus because when it comes time to look at judgment and it comes time to give God the credit or assume that God is the one responsible for judgment is is an interesting dynamic as you read through the Old Testament. And one of the one of the first times, not the first time, but one of the first times where this becomes very clear and, and the rest of the Old Testament repeatedly looks back is to the Exodus from Egypt. The Lord's judgment, if you will, of Pharaoh and how the Lord chooses to judge these oppressive kinds of kings. But I want to read for you three verses from Exodus 14 and 15 to help show you what I think is happening in Revelation 19. In Exodus 14, 23, it says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after the Israelites into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, as the story is unfolding, you're like, well, this is exactly what's going on. Pharaoh was upset that he wasn't able to retain his free labor. And so when he saw Israel attempting to escape, And for a brief time, the pillar of 
fire and the cloud were removed from Pharaoh to, to keep him from pursuing the Israel, he saw his chance and he went in after him. I mean, it just says the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. Four verses later, I want you to listen closely to the way this is worded. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning arrived, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Now, this is really interesting because when Moses and then Miriam sing a worship song to the people in Exodus 15, the chapter after Pharaoh and his army are destroyed, they are drowned in the sea. The people of Israel offer up a worship song to the Lord, and here's what their worship song says. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, that's a really interesting statement to make, right? In verse 23 of Exodus 14, we are told that the Egyptians pursued and went in after Israel into the midst of the sea. This is Egypt. Egypt and Pharaoh are pursuing Israel angrily, and they go into the water after them. In Exodus 14, 27, it says, As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Well, that's interesting. Because now the Lord is being attributed the, the cause of Egypt going into the waters. And yet four verses earlier, we were just told that the Egyptians did it. And so we're watching this interplay work out. When the people now rejoice and, and praise the Lord for his victory, they don't find the need anymore to remind themselves or anyone else that Pharaoh's stubbornness was what drove him and the Egyptians into the waters. Instead, they just sum it up by saying, the Lord has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, I want you to take that idea, the horse and his rider, and jump back to Revelation 19, because in verse 18 it says, "Great Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both, small, both free and slave, both small and great. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea and eat the flesh of horses and their riders. John's making a connection for us or what the Bible project often calls a hyperlink. This is a hyperlink. We're meant to go back into the book of Exodus and think about judgment in the same way it was presented for us in that Exodus narrative. And based on the three verses that I just read to you, I think this is a healthy, effective, and biblically faithful way to understand the judgment of God. Because according to Paul in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed when people turn away from the Lord and from truth and he gives them over to the choices that they've made. He gives them over to the reality that they prefer over against his chosen reality. And here's Pharaoh. The Lord, in fact, judged him in the people's song by throwing him into the sea. And yet we know that the Lord didn't throw Pharaoh into the sea. Pharaoh angrily and selfishly 
drove himself and his chariots and his horses and the riders into the sea, and they were drowned there when the Lord's provision and protection of his own people and the Lord's protective hand of care was removed from the Red Sea and the chaotic waters of destruction that were created and separated by God in bringing his people through the waters in new creation, just like he did in Genesis 1. When those waters collapsed back in on themselves, Pharaoh and his people found themselves at the bottom of the sea. That, in the words of Exodus 15.1, is the Lord throwing the horse and his rider into the sea. I think the same thing is happening in Revelation 19 when it says these two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The Lord is coming back to establish a kingdom, the truth of which was already presented to the world in the person of Jesus. The way this kingdom comes about was presented perfectly in and through the person of Jesus. And in the end, this kingdom is going to be established forever, not violently, any more violently than it was brought about the first time. And trust me, we're not alone in thinking that the kingdom will come about violently. Remember Peter, Matthew 26, verses 51 and 52. It says, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus, when Jesus is being arrested, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You see, God doesn't resort to violence. Violence is not the Lord's means of bringing about righteousness. You can't bring about righteousness through unrighteousness. You can't bring about goodness through wickedness. You can't bring about peace through violence. The Lord doesn't play the world's game just with a bigger stick. The Lord lays down the stick and invites the world to put him on it, to raise him up and to mock him there. I don't know if I can think of a more profound image that the church of Jesus needs today than that one. In a world where we feel like we have to fight to preserve what we have or get angry that a government or our culture or our society is attacking the church or supposedly removing freedoms that Christians hold, you know, hold to so tightly and so closely. If Jesus's kingdom can never end, then there is nothing that can come our way that will threaten that. Absolutely nothing. And so Jesus, known as the word of God and the faithful and true one, means that by the words that he speaks and by his faithful death, as he's described in Revelation 1 as the faithful witness, Jesus being faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, being fueled by the Spirit, according to Isaiah 11, embodying the peaceful presence into the city that was Zechariah 9 foretold, speaking peace to the nations and removing the battle bow, removing the war horse and cutting off the chariot. These are the kinds of things that the Messiah does. He does not then at some future point go back 
on that perfect righteousness in order to wipe his enemies out. That's not how Jesus does things. Jesus doesn't show up one day in one way and show up another way in a different way. We know that as called hypocrisy, acting one way or, or lacking integrity, right? We, we, we act one way when you're alone and you act a different way when you're around other people. We frown on that and rightfully so. So in no world would you and I ever want to be found guilty of accusing Jesus of doing that because that's not what Jesus does. So he's riding on a horse, a sword's coming out of his mouth. The robe that he has is dipped in blood from his own blood, not from his enemies. And he invites his own people who follow him wherever he goes, who've washed their own robes and made them white in the blood in the lamb in the lamb's blood to follow him. We are his army. But Paul says what? We don't wage war the way people in the flesh do. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you destroy arguments and every lofty opinion? We do so with words. We do so with the spoken word, the sword of the spirit, the words that Jesus came to bring to the world. But we do so knowing that we too, at one point, were in need of those words spoken to us. And they, we were in need of those words spoken to us in ways that we could hear. They needed to come through in gentleness and in patience and in love and in compassion. And if there is one thing that I've seen more in need of today in the world is for Christians to be able to know the truth and the truth to be setting them free for them to cling to those truths, abide in those truths, and be able to bring others along into the truth. Not by slinging things, not by threatening people, not by throwing words back in people's faces, not by mocking them, not by making fun of them, not by unfriending them, but by engaging them and loving them and embodying the truth of the message we speak both for the value of what Jesus stands to gain from us trusting him enough to do it that way, and then also because of the compelling nature of who Jesus was when he was here. People flocked to him, or they hated him. And I'm not hoping for a day when people will hate us more than they do, but I, I, it doesn't bother me if that's the case, because that's how people treated Jesus. But Jesus has to deal. He has to stink a, a, a place in the ground in order to see the beast and the false prophet and those who oppose the ways of God and his care for the poor and his care for the marginalized. Those are going to be among the first who leave his presence so that the nations can be brought in. And that is one of the strongest views in the, in the last several chapters of Revelation is how open and welcoming the new Jerusalem is the city of God, to draw in the nations. And so our posture as Christians has to be such that those who do not yet know this God as he is revealed in Jesus will in fact have the chance to come to know him when they see the embodiment 
of the nature and character of Jesus in and through Jesus's people. Those who also have robes, those who also speak with love and they speak the truth, and those who are also, according to Revelation 19, following him on white horses. White horses of victory, right? Of conquering. But how do you conquer in the book of Revelation? You don't conquer by beating your enemies down. You don't conquer by stifling them and, 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 and telling them how wrong they are. You conquer by being willing to self-sacrifice for the benefit of your enemy, to love them, to care for them, to treat them with dignity, and to trust God himself to deal judgment in righteousness. Not based on what his eyes see or what his ears hear. How much, how much more so should we reject that? It is so easy to judge based on what our eyes see or on what our ears hear. I mean, my goodness, it doesn't take me five seconds to hear a particular report about someone and conclude, well, that must be true. Therefore, I can judge them in my mind and write them off. Wow, not even Jesus does that. And so how much more should I caution myself against committing the same error? And so that's Revelation 19. That's the rider on the white horse. That's the robe dipped in blood. That's an, a differing interpretation than maybe you have seen or come across when you looked at a passage like this. And I invite you to think about all the Bible this way. I invite you to think about your own life this way. And I invite you to lay bare before the one with whom we have to give an account your own soul and your own heart, your own fears, your own concerns, your own anxieties, and allow the sword of his spirit to penetrate deep into your soul so that he can transform you with his light, with his hope, and with his love. I love this podcast and I love you and I'm thankful for you tuning in every single week. If you would this week, recommend the podcast to a friend. Um, give me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. And above all, I hope you have a fantastic week. Look for ways to love your neighbor. Look for ways to love Jesus and continue to open yourself up to him as you grow in your ability to love and to trust him. Have a great week. Talk to you next time.